Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 62, Animals. Recorded Thursday, April 30th of 2015, with your hosts, Grant and Peter. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. And I'm Peter. Peter, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty well. It's Good. been uh, kind of a normal day. <laughs> nice. How are you doing? You know I'm doing pretty well. Excited about Fear the Con, making arrangements for that. Yeah, same here. So we've talked about that a lot, but uh, one thing just to note real quick, I have decided that I am not going to be running any games at Fear the Con. Yeah, I don't think I am either. It's something that we may actually want to turn into an episode at some point. Every time I've wanted to go to Fear the Con, I have said, okay, I've got a game I'm going to run. Cool. Every single time, obviously stuff has come up and I haven't been able to go until this year, but every year before that, I have freaked out and had just this huge anxiety attack related to that game. No idea why. It's something that we may want to turn into an episode at some point, but I'm not dealing with it this year. I kind of felt it coming on again. I was like, no, not doing that. Let yeah, me find some games to have fun in. things on the plate. Yeah. So, you know, I'm signing up for games as interesting ones come up, and yeah. Yeah, honestly, I mean, as long as I get to do Shannon's Trouble with Rose game, the uh, podcaster meetup, if they do it again this year. Right, and, and I'm still trying the, to hear back on that. Yeah, and the uh, Commander game that I assume that Willie Gross is going to run, uh, I will be happy with my events. There's already an EDH slot. That is probably the one that he put in then. Yeah, so you may want to sign up for that. I did get into Chris's massive Battletech game, so I'm excited about that. Yeah, and I'm in um, Chad's special backer thing. Oh, there you go. Sweet. All right, enough about that. Uh, other than a reminder, too, if you listened to our last episode, donate to Fear the Charity. Yes, please do. Or Fear the Fruit, if that's more your style. Or both, if that's both. your style. Yeah. Aside from that, though, I think we ought to just go ahead and get into our topic. Yeah, I think so, too. I think we've got enough material here where we don't really need to banter for a long time. <laughs> yeah, agreed. All right, so, Scripture, you want to take Job? Sure. Uh, this is Job 12, verses 7 through 10. But ask the beasts, and they will teach you, the birds of the heaven, and they will tell you, or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you, and the fish of the sea will declare to you, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of mankind. And our next one is Luke chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And this last one is Revelation five thirteen. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Okay, so our topic tonight is animals. Why animals? Well, because I was really struggling to come up with a topic. Took a look at the Christian Gamers Guild's Faith and Gaming articles that MJ Young wrote, and one of those stood out, and I immediately went, animals we haven't talked about those nobody talks about animals nobody like they might have a, a thing on animal companions but that's it right yeah and they're 
I mean, animals are a major, uh, far bigger part of life in the real world, even in our technological, far removed from agrarian society than they were in most fantasy campaigns. Animals would be everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in fantasy campaigns, they come up some, but they're part of human existence. They're a part of creation that we use and interact with on a regular basis, no matter how far removed we are from the farm or herding animals or what have you. They're everywhere, and we tend to just sort of ignore them. Now, to a certain degree, there's a level of abstraction that you want to have, and you don't want to talk about every single little thing you saw on the side of the road while your character is going somewhere, but... Yeah, you don't need time, to know about every squirrel and every hawk that flies overhead. No, but the fact that this is a area populated by squirrels and hawks says a lot about your setting or where you are. Uh, there's a lot of rats and roaches and spiders around here versus there is nothing. This place is completely barren of animal life. Both of those say a lot, right? Yeah. So we kind of sat down and started bandying ideas back and forth about animals and quickly filled up. <laughs> yeah, what page and a half of outline so, something like that yeah let's let's get into this before we do okay. though if you do have topic suggestions we are always open to those can't promise that we're going to get to them immediately or really in any reasonable time frame but we are always looking for topic suggestions you can always email those to us uh, grant at stgcast.org is perfectly fine post them on our google plus community Send them to us on Twitter, Facebook, Google+, whatever. We're always looking for those. Yeah. So let's talk about the kinds of animals that we have in a game, first of all, because it's it's useful, I think, to look at each of these categories individually okay. and talk about what they say about settings. I would say there's, before we really even start digging into the, the subcategories, that there are three major categories that you'll see animals in games. You've got animals that are a component of your civilization or you know, usually domesticated, but this would also cover things like familiars and animal companions. Animals that are outside of civilization or that are monstrous. So this would be your feral and wild animals, um, game animals, dangerous predators, that yeah, sort of thing. Things that are just impossible to domesticate, like a whale. Yeah, or a mountain lion. Yeah. Uh, and then animals as setting background or foreground. And I think we'll leave any description on that until we really get to it, because I think that's where some of the more interesting stuff comes in. So, Well, yeah, and that's where we're going to kind of merge that third category into the first some of these two. others. But there's an interesting breakdown that we need to have here. There's a huge variety of domesticated animals, and honestly, I didn't think about this until we... There really is. As we were sitting here filling in this outline, it was like, you know, we got this and this, and I was like, wait, yeah. no, this, this, you know, is something else that you'll see, and... Yeah. So let's start with some of the more ignored ones. Beasts of burden. Yeah. These say a lot about the environment that you're in. They really do, even on Earth in the real world. I mean, a society that's using horses as opposed to camels, that tells you a lot about the environment that you're in. Sure. Or, you know, your big musk ox versus, say, an elephant. It says a ton. And when they're fantastic, that immediately says a lot. My go-to example for this is Morrowind. Oh, those huge insects? Yeah. So let's compare Morrowind and Skyrim, all right, for okay. your fast travel. Skyrim, it's a horse and a cart. 
And you go up and you pay the guy, hey, I want, I'm going to pay you a certain amount of money and you're going to take me over to the city. Cool. In Morrowind, you go up to this guy, pay him a certain amount of money, and he gets you up onto the back of a giant bug. And it is giant. It's a bug the size of an elephant, at least. Oh, probably twice that and a lot taller. It's got these huge spindly legs designed for walking through the marsh. Yeah, something that's probably about the same weight as an elephant and more like the height of a giraffe. I mean, yeah. it's, they're, they're just huge. So the horse and cart, okay, we, we get it, right? Doesn't say a lot other than, hey, there are roads and horses. But there's so much more interesting setting detail in, well, what do you guys use to get around? These giant water bugs that we've domesticated. Well, the fact that you can domesticate them in the first place is is definitely something interesting. Yeah. So what do people use to move things? Compare it to, say, northern climates where you have working dogs used to haul sleds around. Yeah. Or even race. You know, there's the Iditarod. That's a thing. Well, yeah. I'm talking more about, you know, uh, where people are using these things just as tools to survive. Right. And specifically things to help carry large loads as tools for, what's the, the word? For, um, I'm going to say force multipliers, but that's not quite the word I'm looking for, right? That's more a military term, but right. it's the same idea that going beyond what a human can do, plowing a field with a human pulled plow as opposed to a horse and a horse, horse collar developed or, to pull it, or, yeah, or a muskox designed to get through swampy rice patties, things like that. So... Those say a lot. Uh, similarly, any other working animal, things that maybe aren't designed to pull heavy loads, but which have been used for specific purposes and mostly agricultural purposes, like herd dogs. Yeah. One of the things that's interesting about those is a lot of the time they can be really smart. My mom and dad had a border collie mix years ago, and I swear that dog understood English to the level of at least, like, a first grader. All right. You could talk to this dog like you talk to a person and get appropriate responses. I got to tell you a story. Okay. This is a story about Scruffy. Okay. Scruffy was my parents' dog from before I was born. And they thought, well, you know, we, we've moved. We've got this nice house. We should get a dog. I'm not sure if the dog showed up on its own or if they went and got the dog, but they decided to keep Scruffy for a while. She was half Whippet, half everything else in the world, incredibly smart, and ridiculously destructive. Oh, dear. Yeah, but mostly incredibly smart. She would stalk cows, and once the cows recognized her scent and learned to avoid her, she started rolling in cow patties to hide her scent. She'd bring home chickens, which, you know, no farmer likes. Right. <laughs> She would chase bicyclists and carefully turn her head 90 degrees and shred their back tire to catch them. Oh. Yeah. My parents built you know, this big chain link fence to try and keep her in. And they, they didn't have a ton of money at this time, but they built this massive fence. Try and keep this dog in. Dog learned to dig under the fence. So my dad goes around, buries like, you know, those one by eight boards all along the fence. Right. Okay. She okay. learns to climb the fence. <laughs> so they get more chain link and have it leaning in, right? Like a prison yard. <laughs> okay, so now- Doesn't now slow got, her down. I'm just picturing this dog in an orange jumpsuit now. You really should be. Cow patties and orange jumpsuits. 
they electrify the top of the fence, she completely ignores it. Wow. Yeah. So as kind of the culmination of this, they're like, all right, we cannot let this dog run wild through the neighborhood. It's a terrible idea, but we can't leave it outside. Let's put it in the house for like two hours. They come back and she greets them in the driveway. The dog got out of the house? The dog chewed out the windowsill above the kitchen sink, dug through the drywall insulation, and pushed the siding out from underneath the window, went down two stories down the outside of the house, climbed the electrified, bent-over chain-link fence, and ran wild for a while before greeting them on their driveway. Oh my gosh. Wow. Dogs are impressive. Yeah, my parents' dog was very much better behaved than that. He was among the sweetest and gentlest creatures you'd ever meet. And he was actually, my mom used him for therapy for a couple of her students that were scared of dogs one year. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, and there are plenty of dogs like that. Again, working animal, right? You have therapy dogs and seeing eye dogs. We didn't even think about seeing eye dogs, but those are certainly a, a working dog. Service dogs of all types, police dogs. Maybe those fall under guard animals, but I'm not sure that they do. But we use animals all the time for that sort of thing. And there are some very smart animals that can be trained to do a great many things and can really go above and beyond. Lots of animals can be taught to do things that you just don't think they should be able to do, but they can and they're very good at it. And that's a big part of society because we start to depend on those. Yeah, if you watch videos of trained animals... um Herding dogs are really good for this because you can watch them work as a team and work with the humans and stuff like that. It can get really impressive. You get Border Collies or Australian Shepherds or something out there with a flock of sheep and, you know, just kind of watch how the dogs will make decisions to keep sheep from wandering off without any direction from the humans. And, Mm -hmm. you know, working animals are not necessarily just the horse pulling the carriage, I guess is what we're trying to say here. Right. And I think hunting animals also count. Sure, yeah. The um, bird dogs and that sort of thing. Or hawks. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, even the the hounds that participate in fox hunts, if you're going to go for that element of your setting. Mm-hmm. And I think here we start having more fantastical sort of things like your traditional D&D animal companion, right? Your ranger and his wolf or beast master and his creatures and things like that. Yeah, it's it's interesting that a lot of the time for those kinds of characters, these kind of specifically nature-oriented ones, a lot of the time the choices for animal companions are the sort of things that are typically working animals in the real world. You'll get... They're like a wilder version of it. Yeah, you'll get like a wolf instead of a sheepdog, or you'll get, um, you know, a full-on eagle instead of a trained hunting hawk or something, but a lot of the time it'll be... Something that's at least kind of related to your typical working animal. Yeah. And I think they go with the wild ones more just for kind of the awesome factor. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we're talking about a fantasy sort of setting here. Yeah, absolutely. It's fine. But be aware that that analog exists and says a lot. It says a lot if, you know, hey, yeah, this is the kind of person who can go out into the wilderness, find a wolf and bring them home. Yeah. That's cool. Are there other people like this? Are the streets full of wolves? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> are the wolves a problem or do they just hang out with the people? You know, it's are there pigeons left in the city if every 15th person has a pet hawk? Well, and then that gets into the other thing, familiars, which are usually not traditional working animals. They tend to be, uh, except for cats, 
which are usually used um, for Best mousing control. on farms and stuff. But you'll have things like toads and frogs. And the more fantastic things like little dragonettes or things like that. Yeah. Uh, snakes. Okay, they're also pest control, but they're not your traditional sort. No, I mean, spiders are also pest control, but once again, not your traditional sort. Yeah. Although if you've got a mage who has a tarantula as their familiar, that will tell you something about the mage. Yes. Is this frowned on? Is this really weird? Is that, oh yeah, that's, you know, that's Steve and his magical giant tarantula. Whatever. Yeah, that's the size of a Volkswagen. If that's no big deal, <laughs> hey, okay. Why is that? Just to, to take a quick aside here, something that was very interesting in this, Burning Wheel, in the first edition in one of the supplemental books, I want to say the Monster Burner, had rules for intelligent wolves and intelligent spiders. Mm -hmm. And they were both very much like, you know, sapient level characters. They had life paths and everything just like the human characters did. But they were very much wolves and spiders. Hmm. Some of them were even, you know, kind of like wolf or spider wizards, but you never lost the wolf or spider flavor. And I thought that was very interesting in both cases. The wolves were kind of more of the dire wolf flavor. So, you know, winter wolves or wargs or that sort of you know, big wolves. Yeah. Like the size of a Malamute and possibly up from there. The spiders were anywhere from the size of probably a small dog all the way up to the size of a small car, depending on which life paths were taken. That's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's it, we're, there, we're losing listenership some... the more you talk about giant spiders, all right? <laughs> yeah, sorry. Ah. I will stop with the giant Mostly spiders. Mostly my but... listenership. Like, I'm going to have to fast forward. <laughs> okay. Ah. I, I, in, in respect of the editor, I will stop talking it, about fine, giant but you're spiders right, now. Animals as characters, we could do a whole different episode on animals as player characters, right? But yeah, I, what does that say about the setting if something like that is normal? Yeah. So, um, guard animals. Another type of working animal, certainly. Interestingly, these can be trained or untrained. Sometimes you'll just have a moat filled with alligators, and sometimes you'll actually have trained guard dogs. Sure. I mean, what's the traditional, yeah, there's caverns, but we filled it with giant spiders, so nothing should get through there. Yeah. Right? Oh, there's a there's a river, but it's full of piranhas, so totally have fun fine. fording that with your army. Right. Compared to, yeah, there's a dragon guarding the gate, or, yeah, there are guards with dogs Alberts. that patrol yeah. and things like that. Security dogs, still pretty common. Yep. Right? Um, Particularly <laughs> in really high security environments, like the White House or something, the Secret Service uses them. Yeah, they are, but there's a qualitative difference but you can still have them at the other end of the scale. Sure, the typical junkyard dog. Yeah, I was thinking the junkyard dog, right? You got three barely trained dogs loyal to the guy who owns the junkyard. Anybody else who comes in the junkyard, the dogs go after. And that's good enough security. Yeah, whether that's mauling or just barking, it's usually enough to, right. to suffice. You know, the farmer keeps a close ear out for when his dog starts barking because that means something is on the land that he needs to deal with. Yeah, it could be a fox, it could be another human who isn't supposed to be there. Any of these things. Yeah. This is a great opportunity for something fantastical, especially if it has really good senses. Aliens that have particular or esoteric senses that you can take advantage of, uh, magical creatures, all sorts of things like that. We did this a little bit in Shadowrun, because Shadowrun had a whole subset of magical analogs. Yes, the prehistoric rhinoceros was particularly fun to deal with. I mostly made that up. But 
even in the canonical books, there are things like ivy that changes color when something on the astral plane passes through it. So you look at that and go, huh, that's weird. Something just changed. So, we've, you know, we've got this building covered in ivy. All right, we've been infiltrated. We need to do something about it. That's a nice, subtle bit of security, too. Although mm-hmm. the Shadowrun universe will go from that level of, you know, sophistication and subtlety all the way up to the encounter that I had in one of the Shadowrun computer games where you go in to try and do an extraction and the security team has basilisks. So right. there's a spectrum there. There is a spectrum at the same time, you know, at the other end, there's the magical or cybernetic equivalent of a junkyard dog. So yep. what have you. Um, sort of related to guard animals, military animals. Here we're talking mostly about Animals trained for military situations, horses, siege, beasts, war elephants, right? Things like that. Yep. War dogs. Dogs were very common in medieval Europe and elsewhere. They're still used today. They're just, the roles are a little different. Good for pulling down targets that have trouble getting back up. And, you know, if you've got a a dog that's quick and hard to hit, pulls down an enemy, you just walk over and do your business with them and problem solved. Well, the other thing that um, war dogs can be useful against is cavalry, because they yeah. can keep up with the guy on horseback. That, as you said, they're hard to hit. They can grab the guy by the leg and pull him off the horse. While all of a sudden, now you've just negated, you know, the advantage of one military animal with another one. Sure, and um, you know, certainly you can have more fantastical versions of this, giant eagles or what have you. I think we've all played Warcraft, right? Griffins with hammer throwers on their back. Yeah, right. Uh, probably the most common form of animal in modern society is simply the pet. Yeah. We keep pets around because they're fun and provide companionship and satisfy certain emotional needs. Yeah, I have a very sweet, gentle cat in the apartment here. Yeah, and I've got one that I'm... <laughs> I've got one nice cat and one I'm considering throwing out, so, you know. <laughs> I can't actually throw him out. Don't get mad at me. My toddler would be upset. But he's destroyed carpet and two different screens, so I'm not happy with him right now. Oh, dear. You've got the Cuisinart model of cat, huh? Well, yeah, but here's the thing. We talk about pets, and we usually just go, pets. Yeah, uh, that person has a pet. What's life like with that pet? Yeah, because pets have to be cared for. They have to be provided for if you're going to be traveling or taken with. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't typically eat the same food that people do. They Yeah. Have uh, They keep different hours a lot of the time. They have different habits. And what someone is willing to put up with and has time to invest into says a lot about them. And it says a lot about a society if this is considered normal or weird. Maybe it's different strata of society, right? The Tower of London has ravens that are kept because there was a prophecy that basically the Tower of London would never fall while the ravens still lived in the Tower of London. So to this day, there's someone in the Tower of London whose job it is to keep ravens in the Tower of London. Which has got to be one of the most awesome jobs ever. Well, he's a he's a huge tourist attraction. Anytime you go through the Tower of London, you are ta- you stop and talk to this guy, and he's got ravens to show off and that sort of thing. Any of them talking ravens? I know they can. No, they're, they're just ravens. Still, a massive corvid that size is pretty cool to look at. And that's like a a real high scale. It's not even this is my pet. It's like, yes, I've designated this person to take care of these animals. Yeah, this is the state's pet, basically. Essentially. But compare, say, cat ownership to parakeet ownership. Or fish ownership. 
Yeah. Or, you know, like really intelligent parrots. Yeah. There's a, a whole different level of effort that has to go into this. And it's different kinds of effort. You know, I like keeping fish. Okay, I've got a tank and I need to do some cleaning and remember to feed them once a day. The end. I like having a pet that sits over there and looks pretty. Or I like having an animal that I'm really involved with, right? Like a good dog. Yeah. Or I like an animal that mostly takes care of itself and comes over and snuggles me every once in a while, like a cat. Yep. I like enormous screeching hell beasts, uh, like a parrot. <laughs> or or I like a, an animal that used to be a working animal, but now is just a luxury of the wealthy, like a horse. Okay, yeah. How much effort and money can you put into upkeep for something like that, right? And again... If you're in a society where everybody keeps snakes as pets, I'm thinking of uh, David Eddings again here. Well, okay, why snakes? Why are snakes important compared to somewhere else where they kill snakes on sight, regardless of what they know about it? It's like, nope, it's a snake, it's dead. Just as a uh, a bit of setting texture, I think if a lot of people are keeping snakes as pets, you probably had a serious rodent problem in that setting at some point in the past. Right, or, you know, there's religious reasons for it, or... Sure. You know, what's the traditional image? You know, lethargic and venomous, right? So maybe it says something about society. These are traits that they admire. Who knows? Last thing, uh, food animals. What do people keep for food? Do they keep animals for food, first of all? And this goes beyond just animals that you eat for meat, by the way. Dairy cows are another good example here. Mm -hmm. Chickens? Yep. Right? Uh, sure, we'll eat the chicken, but eggs, we all like eggs by and large. You know, are there strictures on what you can and can't keep? Why are those there? Are they religious? Like so much of the Old Testament, are they dietary? Uh, yeah, we are fully convinced chickens are poisonous creatures and would never touch them. Uh, maybe it's just an error somebody made somewhere along the way. Kind of like how there's the legend of tomatoes being thought to be not good for consumption for a long time. Yeah. How desperate are people to eat certain things? Yeah. Has your society gotten to the point where people will just happily eat rats or are they raising some big, you know, shaggy buffalo creature for its meat? So speaking of buffalo, there are wild animals that are also used as part of civilization. Game animals are a big part of that. Uh, buffalo, deer, fish, I think certainly count. Yeah. Pheasants, ducks, geese. Yep. Uh, whales. For a long time, yeah. Not even necessarily for whale meat, but for oil. Yeah, yeah, blubber was refined into a fuel for a very long time. Right, and then, of course, ambergris for perfumes and things like that. But by and large, the whale meat, this massive quantity of meat, was largely just discarded as inferior. So, you know, animals like that, we don't domesticate, but are still really important to a civilization. Northwest Native Americans often use lampreys. Uh, lamprey was a delicacy, and for European settlers, no, lampreys are disgusting. That's horrible, but it's a delicacy for them. It's a very different culture, and, it, and immediately you go, oh, these are people who really live based off these rivers. The rivers are really important because they are familiar enough with the river that they know what's good, even if we don't. Likewise, dangerous predators. Yeah, the, we're getting into kind of the animals outside of civilization here. We should probably yeah. note that, but yes, you know, this is where... Uh, your lions or <laughs> the, as the old lion line goes, lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. Yeah. Um, Thank you, Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Big things that may or may not want to eat you. Um, these can be really, really like horror movie level scary, too. I mean, 
The movie The Ghost in the Darkness about the Lions of Savo was the scariest thing I'd seen on screen for a long time. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen River Monsters? I don't think I ever have, Okay, Animal Planet certainly has tended in recent years to, shall we say, sensationalist shows. You mean just like every other channel? Well, yeah, but it's done stuff like, you know, mermaids, are they real? You know, things like that. Ah, okay. But- this show, you know, they, they're a little sensationalist at times, but by and large, it's one guy showing off how incredibly dangerous things in the river are. So we're talking and things like barracudas and stuff? Piranha, you know, electric eels, giant catfish that can swallow a man whole, stingrays that are 15 feet wide and, what, three, four, five hundred pounds, a river stingray that'll stab you through the foot, catch its uh, stinger in a bone or tendon, and drag you underwater. Horrible creatures. And these are just things in rivers and lakes and that sort of thing. He only deals with freshwater. He doesn't do saltwater animals, and he's had like four or five seasons of it. Wow. Yeah. Uh, We haven't even talked about bull sharks and other fun things like that. Yeah, once you get into saltwater, it's a whole nother ballgame. Right, and he he only talked about bull sharks because they can swim like 30 or 40 miles upstream and be perfectly fine they have a really high tolerance for fresh water so you're like i'm like 40 miles away from the ocean shark (laughs) what is a shark doing in this freshwater lake the worst shark so yeah yeah here's the thing predators help define what societies do and what they find important interestingly too a lot of the time Predators will, especially in tribal societies, will factor heavily into that society's iconography in some way. They could be religious. They could just be something that's uh, that's looked at as part of like a passage to adulthood. You have to go out and fight in X, Y, Z because it's dangerous and mm-hmm. this will prove that you're a true warrior. Sure. Um, you know, the Mayans had Chipilanque, their jaguar god, uh, who was also the moon god. Yeah, because you have this predator cat who's very dangerous and is out at night and he's a warrior and the moon god talking about rivers here. You know, it's like, yeah, there's a a very dangerous river spirit here. Maybe it comes from nasty creatures that live in the river. Maybe there really is something terrible lurking in the river. Well, there's Native American legends about humongous blood red leeches that can drain a person dry in a matter of seconds, I guess. Mm hmm. You know, it's not quite as dramatic as a dragon, but it's sure scary. Yeah. Uh, Dragons, wyverns, things like that. Wolves feature heavily in European mythology. Which is interesting because wolves generally tend to leave people alone. In a lot of cases, but when you're off on your own, it's certainly very scary. Yeah. And certainly they were a big threat to farmers because, you know, they would raid your sheep and cattle and goats and chickens and take them away. Yep. Coyotes continue to do that. (laughs) Yeah. You know, so these dangerous predators out there help kind of define what people do at night or when they're in certain areas. And maybe not even predators, but just dangerous creatures. Sure. I mean, probably the single most dangerous creature in all of Africa is not a big cat of some kind. It's the hippopotamus. Yeah. They are the most nasty, vicious territorial, bloodthirsty animals. They will capsize boats and kill everybody who falls into the river. They're just horrifyingly bad. Mm -hmm. But they're not predators. They're not hunting humans. They're just incredibly territorial. Yeah. Kind of on a related note, pests. 
I think we tend to ignore insects when we're talking about our settings, unless it's like, yeah, there are, uh, there are giant spiders here, or yeah, it's uh, it's a mosquito-ridden swamp. Yeah, pests and insects and things like that—they're a huge part of the ecosystem. First of all, well, and not even just as pests. I mean, things like honeybees are critical to the sure. ecosystem. I would almost qualify those as a, a working animal, right? The, the, yeah, or, that's uh, true. Food animal, but say um, mosquitoes. Malaria is a huge problem. Yeah, it is in a lot of different tropical areas. What do people do to deal with that? You know, do you have to sleep with, with mosquito netting in certain areas? Do you have to sleep off the ground to make sure you don't get bugs in your tent? Are there certain things that ignore humans but will kill certain beasts that, you know, you depend on? Yeah. Are there certain things that go only for humans? Are there things that destroy crops like locusts? Yeah, this can be things like parasites, too. Stuff that, you know, you can ingest the eggs and suddenly you've got something you wish wasn't growing inside you. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, two of the plagues of Egypt were locusts and frogs. Yep. Both pest creatures. Yeah. And they did some real damage to Egypt. <laughs> yeah. Well, one damages crops, one soils water and gets everywhere. Yep. And, you know, ruining water is a, a big deal. Especially in a desert. Right. And, you know, deserts tend to have their own terrible pests like scorpions and that sort of thing. Anything hardy enough to survive out there is generally going to be nasty. Look at Australia. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Yeah. Everything there is vicious and or poisonous. Yeah, and along with poison, you have disease. And these are typically problems for rural or unsettled areas. Yeah, and you know, the thing is, even in the modern world, these things can crop back up. I remember yeah. a few years ago, a news report of a mountain lion wandering around a Chicago suburb. And the mm -hmm. police were called in to deal with this thing, and the radio guys in the area just had a field day with that. But, I mean, if there's a puma stalking down an alley, that's a problem, especially if it's by a school. Yeah, that's a problem. Raccoons. In oh, yes. Suburban and urban areas. The bane of trash containers everywhere. Trash containers, and, you know, what else do they get into? Let me tell you, the biggest explosions I have ever heard have been squirrels getting into transformers, short-circuiting themselves, and blowing up the transformer. <laughs> it's, it's funny, but I do believe it. Yeah. We lost power for eight hours, you know, years ago when we were in, in an apartment. We lost power for about eight hours because a squirrel blew up a transformer, suicided itself in there. The electric company had to come out clean out the poor squirrel, and replace massive quantities of the components of this transformer for blocks. I mean, it, it powered the entire apartment complex. Wow. It was a problem. Well, at least it was quick for the squirrel. Uh, yeah, but these pest creatures can suddenly and surprisingly cause big problems. And what those problems are help define a lot about a setting. Rat catchers are a classic fantasy character or, you know, historical fantasy character because they're important to urban life when you have poor sanitation. Yeah, rats can be a real problem. Yeah, the bugs that they carry spread disease. And, you know, typically people in the pseudo-medieval fantasy setting that we're talking about don't know, oh yeah, it's, uh, it's fleas, not rats. They go, ah, rats, those are horrible disease-ridden creatures and they spread horrible diseases or if it's you know the black plague striking europe they go oh cats cats are the problem and make everything worse so 
is the rat catcher well paid or is his job, you know, one of those dirty necessities? Yeah. Animal control officers, we depend on them, but we don't necessarily pay them well. Yeah, that goes for a lot of those types of professions. Sure. And, you know, is it one of those, you know, necessary, dirty jobs where it's like it's necessary, but it's really awful. So, you know, the pay scale sort of is somewhere in the middle. Is it one of those where, you know, this is a horrible, terrifying job and we have to pay people a lot to get it done? It really depends on the preponderance of gigantic spiders in your setting, I'm guessing, right. as to how well that pays. Is it a penny a day and all the rats you can eat? What is it? <laughs> or Or is it, all right. Stick with the three other guys who are going to be in front of you in plate mail. Here's your halberd. You know, if you if you come back in one piece, there's 30 gold waiting for you at the end right. of the day. Good luck. Yeah. It's a possum. We're very sorry. <laughs> you know? <laughs> no, badger. Well, you know, we've been talking about, or I've been trying to stress setting, right? What do these things say about a setting? Animals are a big part of any setting background. When you mention them in passing, immediately people have connections to these animals and connections to the animals' environments that they know. If we're talking about, you know, zebras and hyenas, we immediately think African savanna. Right. If we're talking hawks and squirrels, we're talking, you know, Appalachian kind of forest, like around where I live. Or the Great Plains where I live. But yeah, I mean, kind of a, a North American sort of setting. If we're talking penguins, okay, now we're talking about something completely different. Yeah. Seals and polar bears, you know, something different on the uh, northern end of <laughs> yes, the cold other end of the, earth. Of the southern. Yes. Immediately, we, we take those animals and envision them in where they live. And from that, we get a picture of the setting that we're describing. So it's easy to say, yeah, it's a woodland forest. Or we can say, yeah, it's a wooded area. You hear a lot of bird calls squirrels are chittering at you it gives us a, a much stronger sense of that place they're very useful as background you can also make them the foreground uh, lots of fantasy has been written about dragons and other dragon-like creatures alien creatures part and parcel of much of science fiction and then there's this other category that i think deserves being touched on and these are what uh the gameable disney podcast refers to as mice and hats yeah. These are animals that are animals, but are human-level intelligent and can usually talk. They're they're human analogs, yeah. essentially. This is your Rescuers movies, um, Iago in uh, Aladdin, you know, the mice in Cinderella, uh, mouse guard characters even. Well, yeah, that's the thing. There are whole RPGs built around that sort of character and playing them. I think in a lot of fantasy games, you're... Animal companions creature will be sort of like this. Maybe they don't talk, but, you know, it's like, oh, uh, yeah, I understand what he's saying. We have a special bond. <laughs> you I, know. I, I know a little squirrel squeak, squeaking, squeak, squeaker. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I was trying to be cronk there. Good job. <laughs> Glad you picked up on that. Alien symbiotes. This weird purple thing adheres to my arm and lives off of my sweat somehow. I don't know how it works, but uh, it gives me psionics, so it's a, it's a good deal. Yeah, I'm down. It's fine. Brain slugs? Totally. Yeah. Plus one to intelligence, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. We talk about parallels between science fiction and fantasy occasionally, and this is one of those places where those parallels are really apparent. You know, what's the difference between an uplifted animal in a sci-fi story and an awakened animal in a fantasy story? Uh, terminology and means. Exactly. Same with uh, uh, a wizard created this animal or gene splicers created this animal. Yeah. And Same for thing. an interesting mix of the two, look at the Simic Combine from Magic the Gathering. Yeah. I have a card here called Shamble Shark. It's a fish, crab, and looks like human mix. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a wizard pieced that together. Totally. Yeah. Weird fantasy creatures that say, look, it's a fantasy world. Yeah, the Chimera. Yeah. Are they any different from alien creatures that make you go, look, it's an alien world? Not really. Yeah, the art Terminology style, matters, maybe. But their presence is important because it defines what the world is like. What are the rules of the world? How close to our world is this? What should we expect? Um, for all the jokes that everybody has made about Avatar, it did a pretty good job of saying this is a world where things all kind of evolve to talk to each other. Yeah. Right? It's all evolved around big floating rocks in the sky. Okay, well, that's a cool ecology. And it could have been a fantasy setting and kind of was, and it could have been a science fiction setting and kind of was, but you'll note that it was really easy to blur that line because it's fundamentally the same fantastic setting. It's just how you say it came about. Well, and the other thing that's interesting is if you want a really, really good example of just how much these types of um, creatures can indicate a setting or even a, a set of intellectual properties, mm -hmm. you're sitting, you know, you're sitting on a bench and this guy rides up on this two-legged fluffy yellow bird. What game are you in? Uh, that's Final Fantasy. Yep. It's a chocobo. They're in every yep. single one of them. Although, because I've been watching a lot of Sesame Street, I immediately went big bird, but you know. Yeah, he's not a riding animal, though. No, he's, he's not. not usually. But the idea of chocobos with big bird voices is kind of funny all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of. Okay, but actually, let's talk about that for a second. Animal intelligence. One of the things that defines an animal as opposed to an alien is that they are typically less intelligent than humans, right? We talked about this somewhat with dogs, that they can be very intelligent, but never quite as intelligent as people. Right. As adaptable as Scruffy was, he didn't have language. He couldn't no. speak to you. He couldn't do higher math. He was still an animal. Exactly. But Scruffy knew things that my parents did not know, like how to stalk cows or how to get into the hen house and kill a chicken and take it home. Or how to escape from anything, it sounds like. Yeah, a terrifying dog. Animals know different things, right? This was kind of one of the whole points of the, the Beastmaster TV show, which was a terrible 90s, early 2000s show based off the 80s movie. You have a guy who can talk to animals and see through their eyes, and in doing so, he knows so much more than everyone around him. You know, the wolf says, yeah, there are people coming. The hawk lets him see over places. The ferret lets him get into places, you know, kind of with his mind, things like that. Well, and some of the time, the reason why animals know things that we don't is because their senses work differently. Exactly. I mean, that's the reason why you have everything sniffing dogs, you know, from drugs to bombs to lost mm -hmm. children. You know, a dog's keen sense of smell will allow them to find stuff that humans can't find. Dogs and cats can hear frequencies that humans can't, which is why dog whistles work. I've read somewhere that uh, some animals can see farther into the ultraviolet or the infrared than we can. They don't always have perfectly mapped senses as to ours. The late Sir Terry Pratchett did a great job of this with his werewolf character in oh, Angua? Uh, Discworld. Yeah, Angua. In, it was either Men at Arms or Feet of Clay, maybe both. Where he's describing the, the different colors of the smells and stuff right. that she experiences. Smell as a 3D, 4D model of people. This person stood here and waited this long. And you can smell it because their smell is really strong here where they stopped and waited for a little while and then 
much less when they were walking quickly down the street. It's something that human senses have no concept of because if we don't depend on that sense, but a dog can really get that same sort of thing. An animal with some sort of thermographic or heat sense would experience things completely differently. So if you can get that information, you know, and, and convert that into human terms, that's one of the reasons I think we all kind of like the animal companion idea. It's a different source of knowledge that we couldn't get elsewhere. Well, and they're fluffy and they have fangs and claws and stuff, too. I mean, yes, there's we'll that. talk about that, too. Oh, look, I have a pet. Yeah. Certainly is a big part of it. But that's in terms of, you know, use in a game. I think we all kind of like the Yeah, your um, your dog is scratching at something. Oh, good. Well, let's let's go see what he has found. And how animals get that across to you is a, a big deal as well. Is it like a well-trained pointer dog? You know, is there some psychic connection? Is it Can it talk to you and nobody else like Varsuvius's familiar in order of the stick? Yeah. Um chickadees, black-capped chickadees around here, simple little thing. They have a, a warning cry, you know, it's chickadee and then the number of d sounds at the end of it indicate the threat level. Huh. You hear just chickadee d, eh, no big deal, right? Something that they're concerned about is around. Chickadee d d d d all the chickadees around need to panic. <laughs> and of course, other animals have learned that and go, oh, the chickadees are, that's like five, six Ds. I need to run. I need to find my burrow. <laughs> this is bad. <laughs> this yeah. is either humans or a tornado or, or something. Well, or like a fox or a yeah. cat, right? You know, something that they recognize as a threat. So how do animals communicate that to themselves and to others? And what animals know, I think, is one of the places where you can actually pull a little bit of theological information in. M.J. Young, who's the chaplain of the Christian Gamers Guild, wrote a pretty interesting article back in 2004 for the Faith and Gaming column that he wrote. And this was on animals, and he was talking about the wind and the willows. In the wind and the willows, the main characters have a Christmas carol, which speaks of the animals as the first to sing Noel because they were the first to recognize Christ. It's a fantasy. It's a children's fantasy. That's fine. Right. But certainly the knowledge of animals, that instinctive knowledge, comes up time and again in Scripture. Balaam's ass wouldn't go forward because he could see the angel that the prophet couldn't see in the middle of the road. Yeah, that for once a donkey was being stubborn for some reason other than just sheer cussedness. Yeah, certainly we have understood that dogs and cats are sensitive to earthquakes and tsunamis, and some of that filters into our idea of what animals can do and can sense. Uh, there are always legends about, you know, this dog has two different eyes. It can see ghosts, right? Uh, weird stuff like that. Well, and then there's things like um, the cat in the hospice that knows when somebody's going to die or that animals can sometimes sense when the people that they live with are distressed and they try and be comforting. My uh, That same dog I was telling you about that my parents had for a while when my mom was sick and was going through chemo, she had cancer. Mm -hmm. that dog just would not leave her side unless my dad was home. Like, my dad would leave and go to work, and that dog was just like, if you need anything, I'm right here. I don't know what I can do because I'm a dog, but darn it, if you need something, I'm not leaving. Yeah, and to go back to Scripture again, that bit from Job. Yeah. Ask the beasts, and they will teach you. The birds of the heavens will tell you. The fish will declare to you, the hand of the Lord has done this. All of these things know that. All of these things know God and praise God, and part of that idea is that, you know, humans are, we've turned our backs on it, but all of creation, 
even fallen, knows God and yearns for him. So if you are talking to animals, does that filter into your conversation? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Dungeons and Dragons has long had spells like stone speech and things like that. I think that's the name of it, where you know you talk or speak with plants, speak with animals. Right. And in the description, it tells you animals or stones or plants perceive things differently and know different things. Different animals may have different sorts of wisdom. Depending on what you talk to, you'll get it differently. Uh, an owl will certainly perceive things very differently from a squirrel. Yeah. Not least, they'll both have different opinions of the other. Yeah. Yeah, the squirrel will be terrified of the owl, and the owl will think that the squirrel looks like a tasty snack. Speaking of that, it is important to note that the animal world, such as it is, is often kind of cruel. Depending on how you're treating animals in your game, you may need to be careful of that, because certainly there are players who are very sensitive to animals. Much more, We all, I think, know someone who's much more sensitive to cruelty to animals than cruelty to people. You know, it's interesting. Uh, this came up on another podcast that I listened to. The Crate and Crowbar, which is this British PC gaming podcast. Mm -hmm. If you're into PC gaming, it's excellent. But they were talking about how in first-person shooters, no matter what they try and do, it seems like they never get any empathy out of what happens to people. But you have one dog yelp and, you know, it hits people right in the feels, as it were. Oh, yeah. Brandon would always talk about what you do to kind of introduce your, your good guy character, have him save a cat. Yeah. Our relationship with animals immediately says something about the kind of person we are or the kind of person this character is. There's a reason the term puppy kicker exists. Yeah. And has such horribly negative connotations. Right. Exactly. You can use cruelty or kindness as a way to indicate something about a character, but I think you do need to be aware of be tasteful Certain, with it like anything yeah, else. As we've talked about occasionally, you know, lines and veils, if somebody is going to be really, really upset about even the slightest bit of animal cruelty, be aware of how far you can go with that. Right. Well, and even scenes of natural predation can be pretty upsetting. Sure. If somebody's grown attached to, uh, you know, the mice that live around them and all of a sudden all those mice are killed by a snake, that's going to be a little bit traumatic because somebody's gotten a emotional connection to these creatures, even creatures we might consider pests. Certainly if they're, you know, Cinderella mice, it's a little bit different. And all of a sudden they're gone. That's going to get a reaction. Maybe that's good. My, uh, but just be aware of it. My very kind-hearted wife tells a, a story about um, this furniture store that she used to work at. And they figured mm -hmm. out that they had mice. And she said she um, she got a, uh, a live catch trap. And she got the little guy in there and she took him out to a parking lot and she left a couple of grapes by it where she let him out. So mm -hmm. he had some food and stuff because she just couldn't bear to hurt this cute little furry thing. Right. And, you know, it's possible to kill animals without cruelty. Certainly every farmer knows that yeah. and has to do it at some point. My wife tells a story about her granddad who found a family of mice living in the barn. And he brought his grandkids over and showed them and showed them the little baby mice in the nest. And then in front of them, killed them all and explained that mice are a pest and they cannot exist on a farm because they ruin the farm. Yeah, it's a, probably a rough thing for the kids to watch, but... It's rough, but Chrissy's like, yeah, it was an important lesson. So, you know, I'm sure she felt scarred by it at some point, but at the same time, you'll be hard-pressed to find farmers who won't go, 
Yeah, you can't have mice. One last note on animals. I think it's very easy, especially if you have an abundance of animals in a party, to lose focus on the players. Yeah, you don't want to do that. <laughs> and not even the player characters. Certainly the, um, hi, I'm a traveling zoo character is a problem, but sometimes, oh, the animal is cute. Oh, look, the animal is doing tricks. Oh, look, it's an imaginary animal that does imaginary tricks for me that I create. Yeah. It oh, can look, be a distraction. the paladin's war horse does this, and the druid's wolf does that, and the wizard's bird does the other thing. And Yeah. Quantity can be a problem, but also just if you're spending a lot of time talking about this one animal, it may or may not be a problem. If all of the characters are invested in it and the plot is continuing, fine. If it's becoming a distraction, it's something you may have to take care of. The animal itself may be perfectly valid in the setting, but if it's distracting you from the game or distracting this one player from the game because they've got their imaginary Tamagotchi, then... Well, and it's something you're going to have to take it, care of. It's like, you know, too much detail on any part of a setting can be a problem. That's true. Your sword fetishist is going to have the same problem. Yeah. Or, I mean, heck, the, the person that wants to know, like, what kind of waste disposal the fantasy system or, you know, city has, um, you know, do they have aqueducts and sewers or is this just a river that, you know, they draw clean water from one end and dump waste in the other. Yeah. You know, it's How does like, the canal system work and yeah. all that? You know, yeah, uh, the guy who has carefully designed all parts of the ship. Yeah, it's all certainly part and parcel of the same problem, but I think animals are an easily available source of that. Sure, by virtue of being living things, they're they're more like supporting characters in a lot of ways. Yeah, they are, and they're ubiquitous across many settings, so it's a problem you're just more likely to encounter. Yeah. So... Just something to be aware of, I guess, more than anything. And that's a lot of material. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was way more than I thought we'd have when we first started talking about this. Not by the time we were done with the outline, but... Uh, no, no, not as such. I'm sure there's a lot more that could be said about animals. I think this is a good kind of high-level overview of things to, to be aware of and ways to use animals. I want to emphasize again, especially in... I, I think this is very valuable for writing, but when you're running a game, describing the animal life around the setting will help liven it up tremendously. Yeah. In part because it gives your characters and thus your players something to interact with potentially or something that your NPCs will have to deal with like a, a farmer, a farmer out in his field. Okay, whatever. A farmer herding some cattle or, you know, chasing a lost uh, sheep. There's a little more going on. It's a real place with things that are happening. Yep. I, okay. I really don't have anything else to add. I, I think. Well, that's usually a good time to wrap it up then, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Again, I want to stress, if you have topic ideas, please go ahead and send them to us. If you have anything else you want to email us about or contact us about. Yeah, we're always more than happy to hear from you. Yeah, we really do like interacting with listeners. Looking forward to doing some of that at Fear the Con, actually. Absolutely. So from both of us, want to wish everybody uh, a good week. We'll talk to you again soon. And catch you later. All right. See you next time. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial, non-derivative license, so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.